We're going to read from 1 Corinthians chapter 6. It's quite a short reading, so get ready. (laughs) Um, I was thinking as we were singing that, the wonderful thing about the Christian life is that there's always more to know about God. And the best place to find him is in the scriptures. So we're going to read 1 Corinthians 6, verses 1 to 8. And in this uh, letter, at this point, the Apostle Paul is um, commenting on the fact that there were legal cases going on between the believers in the church. This is what he says, and this is God's word. If any of you has a dispute with another, do you dare to take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people? Or do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters... Do you ask for a ruling from those whose way of life is scorned in the church? I say this to shame you. Is it possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? But instead, one brother takes another to court, and this in front of unbelievers. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brothers and sisters. Great. Well, good evening, everyone. Do um, keep that passage open. It's a strange passage, isn't it? It's quite puzzling, um, but we're going to look at it together. It may be the, the big church day out today and lots of people away, but um, maybe we could call ourselves the small church day in. Um, but it's still a significant time to be together. We have God's word in front of us. It's a really rich passage, and I hope and pray it will be helpful to us. But let's pray together as we look at this chapter. Father, we, we were... Considering this morning that challenge to behold our God, to stand in awe of who you are. And uh, in a similar way, as we look at this passage, we get to the heart of what real love should look like in a church. How we are to love as you have loved us. So I pray that you would teach us about that, that you might rebuke us where we don't love like this. You might grow our love for each other, that we might increasingly love like this. And we pray that we would truly behold our God tonight because it's only in the gospel that we have both the motivation and the ability to love those who have wronged us. Please help us as we look at this passage together that we might live for your glory in the week ahead. Amen. This is a a passage that really gets to the heart of relationships um, within the church, relationships we have with each other. In so many ways, there's not a more important subject to consider 
It's a deeply relational subject. And actually, chapter 6 through to chapter 9 of 1 Corinthians focus in on uh, different issues that the church in Corinth were having, primarily related to the way they were relating to each other. Uh, When Wellesley started this little series back in chapter 1, he made a sort of introductory comment that the problem with the church in Corinth was that it had an awful lot of Corinth within it. Um, It's not for any moment saying that there is not good in our world that we cannot enjoy or benefit from. We believe in common grace. We believe there's much to be enjoyed in the world. There's much helpful influence in the world. It's not that the church is to be completely distinct and separated from the world such that there's no continuity. But here the problem is not so much that. The problem is that the church has picked up really unhealthy habits from the culture around them. It's got into the church and it's affecting the way that the church people are relating to each other. And Paul therefore has to be fairly strong in challenging it. Uh, And the reason he does that is because he says all the way through this letter, your profession of faith as a Christian needs to stack up when it comes to the way that you live your life. If you go back to chapter 3, verse 3, What had Paul said, almost in rebuke to this proud church? He said, you're still worldly, for there's still jealousy and quarreling amongst you. Are you not worldly? It's a challenge, isn't it? Now, I don't have a flip chart here, but I would love a little bit of audience participation. I want you to think about Long Crendon or the community where you live. Where are we in danger of absorbing unhealthy parts of the culture around us and those things can get into the church i don't don't want to get very morbid and introspective but i'd be interested just to hear from a few people what are some of the pressures that we feel or the influences of the culture around us which if we stop if we fail to stop and think about it will get into the church and affect the way we relate we could just to shout out one or two things just for us to ponder unhelpful cultural traits around us that get into the church any ideas Money rules, yeah. Around here, money certainly talks, doesn't it? And money rules dictates the lives of many. And there's a danger that money can rule our lives as Christians. We can hold very tightly to what God has given us, yeah. Immediacy, yeah. That's a good word, we'll take it. Yeah, immediacy, yeah. It's something to do with the, the rights culture as well we live in. Everything's just so quick, social media and the rest of it, and we expect things immediately. It's often perhaps one of the problems, therefore, in waiting on God. So a couple of others. Yeah, life's just frantic out there, isn't it? And life can get very frantic in here. It's interesting that our day away in a few weeks' time is going to be helping us to really recalibrate our hearts as we live in an ever-frantic world. Um, Can we slow down enough to really behold and enjoy God? Um, Thelma. Yeah, it's all about me. I was preaching up at um, Bista last Sunday afternoon. Uh, and the subject was um, self-obsession. It was really focusing on our worlds so quickly revolve around self. Um, let's have one more. Gossip. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Gossip is a real problem in the world. And it's really dangerous when gossip gets into the church. And because there's a certain tightness of a church family, gossip in, in some ways is more dangerous in her church than it might be in the world. But notice in our reading, what does Paul say? Actually, it's just after our reading, chapter 6, verse 11. He speaks to the Corinthians and he says, This is what some of you once were, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. Now, he's not being unrealistic. He's not saying, look, you used to not be in Christ. You used to not be a believer. Now you are a Christian, so there should be nothing about your life that doesn't honor God. He's realistic. We're going to grapple with sin. We're going to grapple with some of these problems. 
But Paul is not so much saying, I'm rebuking you because you've made a mistake, because he knows we'll all make mistakes. He's saying, I'm challenging you to think about your identity. Because who you are, and remembering that, has a profound impact on the way that you live your life. He says, this is what you once were, but you've been freed from that. So those things no longer need to characterize your relationships with each other. See, a big issue in chapter 6 to 9, there's two big issues. One is identity. Paul is saying to the church, know who you are in Christ. The other big issue is witness. Think about the way that you relate. Is your behavior helpful or unhelpful as a watching world watches you? And the foundation he talks about, uh, the foundation for how we tackle these issues, and we've begun to see it last week in chapter 5, this whole issue of, of um, reconciling with a brother who's hurt us, is this idea of love. Love is the foundation for our relationships. So just two things I'd like to look at in this passage tonight. And the first one's there on the screen. I hope you see in this passage that true love does not press rights. Just consider the song we just sung. It's easy to sing songs, isn't it? The words are on the screen and we just sing them. But just have a look at the words you have just sung and I have just sung. All to Jesus I surrender. All to him I freely give. I will ever love and trust him in his presence daily live. I surrender all. I surrender all. All to thee, my blessed saviour, I surrender all. Now, if you're anything like me, as I reflected on those words, knowing we would sing them tonight, and I had the chance to pre-reflect, now is your chance to reflect. Um, I surrender in my life many things, but do I surrender all? I give many things, but do I give of my all? The key word in that song we've just sung, the, the real thing that bites us is that word all, isn't it? It's one thing to surrender, but the challenge in this song, we've just sung it, is, Lord, I surrender everything I have before you. We'll come to our passage, because that doesn't seem to be what's on view here in Corinth when Paul writes. And perhaps there's times, at least in our church, where that's not true either. He says, verse 1, When one of you has a grievance against the other, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? He's saying... When you're falling out with each other, why on earth are you going to an external pagan court to sort out disputes, which are primarily probably spiritual things, where you're falling out with a brother and sister in church? He's saying, what are you doing? He says, verse 2, or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? You can read Matthew 19 and Luke 22, where you read that one day one of the awesome privileges of being a Christian is that we will rule with the Lord Jesus Christ. And we will be judges of all. It's an astonishing privilege. And he says, listen, if this is one of the privileges you're one day going to enjoy, what on earth are you doing now in your church? You're going to judge and rule with Jesus Christ forever. And yet you're falling out with each other and taking each other to court. And you call yourself Christians. And then he goes on, if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels, how much more matters pertaining to this life. So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? Don't forget the context. Corinth was a provisional seat of government. And Greek culture, which you looked at in the first week, really um, got a buzz off the law courts for two reasons. Partly because they loved the great rhetoricians, the great lawyers who could debate and banter and argue a case. And people would go to a law court just to spectate, to watch 
these great orators fighting stuff out. The law courts were a form of entertainment for the intellectuals. But also the law courts were a place where people could make money. And as we'll see later on in, in, in 1 Corinthians, in chapter 11, there was a strong social class distinction in Corinth. You had the very wealthy people and very much less wealthy people. And those who had a lot of money were using that power unhelpfully. And you see it particularly on view in chapter 11 with the Lord's Supper, where the wealthy people were enjoying lovely food and they were not waiting for those who had less to join them. They were just looking after themselves. Listen to the words of a first century magistrate. This just gives you a little sense. Old language, but I've underlined the key bits. Of what avail are laws to be when money rules alone? And the poor suitor can never succeed. The very men who mock at the times by carrying the cynic's wallet have sometimes been known to betray the truth for a price. So a law court is nothing more than a public auction. This was a first century magistrate reflecting on the culture of their law courts and saying basically it's an opportunity for wealthy people to abuse less wealthy people. And people in the church were thinking, well, I can make a bit of money out of my dispute. Let's go to court. It's rather bizarre. But look at our reading. What's most bizarre about this? What does Paul say, verse 2? These are trivial matters, he says. Uh, don't confuse this with, I think, the right place occasionally to go to court to fight for religious freedom. You think something like the Ashes Bakery case, read its head on the news again. Sometimes it's right to stand for what is true. And there's a place for Christian lawyers, there's a place for court. But here, that's not what's on view. What's on view here is just trivial little bickering disputes where Christians are falling out with each other and some are even going to court over it because they can make a little bit of money. And then he says, verse 2, do you notice verse 2 and 3? Twice he says, do you not know? I think here Paul is playing on the kind of buzzword of Corinth, the whole thing about knowledge. They prided themselves on being so knowledgeable. And here he's almost mocking them. Do you not know? You who pride yourself on having such great knowledge, do you not know that what you're doing is causing great harm? And the point of all this is that when the world, when unhelpful cultural influences from the world get into the church, it has a profound impact on the way that we relate to each other. Yet Paul says, doesn't he, in verse 11, this is what you once were. Corinthian church, or church in Long Crendon in the 21st century, remember your identity and remember your role as a witness to a watching world is the way that you're relating to each other honoring the gospel that you profess that's the heartbeat of this passage and then he goes on verse 5 and says i say this to your shame can it be that there is no one wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers but a brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat to you. Just think about that. Why is it already a defeat? What's on view here is a kind of real collapse of both moral and spiritual. It's a moral and spiritual defeat. The whole unity and love that is meant to characterize the church, that then is meant to be a clear witness to the watching world, has been blown apart and Paul is saying, first of all, you're not loving each other because you're making money from each other and falling out. Second of all, you're not doing what you're commanded in God's word, which is to sort out disputes about the church inside the church. And thirdly, consider the witness that you are. You're just acting like the rest of the world. 
Now this is a puzzling one to sort of try and apply because you might think, well, I've never really thought about taking someone to court. Maybe you have, but you haven't owned up to it, but I hope not. But taking one another to court is probably not on view. But I think the principle underlying it would be something more along the lines of maybe a, a, a protracted, drawn-out falling out with each other. Uh, maybe somebody in church has snubbed you, um, spoken a casual word to you once, not really thought, been unkind. Maybe someone has not valued you. Maybe a pastor or a leader in a church has said something or treated you in a way that's really hurt you. And the danger here would be allowing that hurt that's been caused just to continue to fester, to not allow the cross to heal it in God's grace and his timing. And Paul's challenging that and saying, if you are a brother and sister in Christ, for Jesus' sake, you owe it to each other, to love each other, even when you're hurt. And so Paul's getting to the very heart of the gospel. If the gospel is about a cosmic reconciliation, man and God coming together because of what Christ has done, he says, as a church, you should be people who are able to forgive and forgive and forgive and forgive. And it costs to forgive and it's painful to forgive. But he says, but you should be like that by God's grace. I just want to pause here before we carry on, just to give us all a moment of quiet in our hearts. To come before the Lord and maybe ask for forgiveness. If you can think of an individual in the church who you kind of can just ignore, particularly on a Sunday morning maybe because the church is full. Maybe someone that you have harbored a bitterness towards. Maybe the hurt was very legitimate, but the bitterness is not healthy. Just to come before God in a moment of quiet and just ask for that forgiveness. So we might even now begin to put into practice some of the challenges that Paul gives here. Just a moment of quiet as you bring your heart to the Lord. As you lay those things before the Lord, I encourage you to continue doing that. Um, Forgiveness is both an event. I decide to forgive. It's also a process. I have to keep determining to forgive. And sometimes these things take time to work out. But maybe this passage will challenge us about these sort of relationships where we need to reconcile with someone. But what Paul is saying is there's a way of the world of dealing with disputes and falling out with each other. And if that gets into the church, it's really destructive. So Paul says there's a better way. There's a far better way to relate. There's a gospel way. How does true love not press rights? And then Paul, to answer his own question, he says something very provocative by asking the Corinthians a couple of questions. Just listen to the challenge, verse 7. Rather than press your rights, he says, why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? And you read that and go, well, I don't want to suffer wrong because wrong is wrong. I don't want to be defrauded because it's wrong to be defrauded. But Paul still asks the question, he says, but why not? Because you're not like the world. Of course the world would say that, but you're not like the world because, verse 11, that is what you once were. There's a better way, he says. And it's a challenging way, it's a far harder way, but he says, by God's grace, is that the way that you want to go? See, in the church, self-gain and self-protection is not the way of the gospel. And instead we should surrender our rights. And sometimes that will mean that we will get hurt or misunderstood or be devalued but we do it for the sake of Christ remember the words we just sung I surrender all and sometimes that means I need to surrender my desire deep down to be vindicated and prove that I was right I need to surrender the hurt that is consuming me and eating away on the inside I surrender all 
Consider Jesus, um, Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5 to 7. What Jesus does when he's teaching his disciples and the crowd's listening in, he basically takes the values of the world and he turns them on their head, particularly with the Beatitudes, which is how the Sermon on the Mount begins. And when he gets to chapter 5, he's talking about people who have wronged you. Just notice these words that might be familiar to you. Very provocative words of Jesus. He says, I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone wants to force you to go a mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you. Do not turn away from the one who does want, who wants to borrow from you. If you read that, that is not the way of the world, is it? I've been slapped on one cheek, I'll get my revenge. Or a cold shoulder. But Jesus says, no, that's not the way of the cross. It's really challenging and provocative words. I remember um, 2008, I was working for Christians in Sport. I was in the old Bister office, as it once was, upstairs with the other interns. Greg, who was my line manager, was leading us in a Bible study on the Beatitudes. And I remember getting to the Beatitude, blessed are the merciful. And I remember it to this day, and it was 10 years ago. He challenged all of us, the six of us sitting around the room. And he looked us all in the eye and goes, naming us one by one. He says, Mark, are you a justice person or a mercy person? It hit me like a train. And I've never forgotten it. And I come back to that regularly when I'm hurt by other people. Am I a mercy person or am I a justice person? See, a justice person is a person who always has to find justice. I have to be proved to be right. I have to show the other person that they've wronged me. A mercy person is able to say, I'm so loved by God. I'm prepared to be misunderstood. I'm prepared to be undervalued. I'm prepared to be hurt because there's a better way. It's the way of Matthew chapter 5. It's the way of the cross. But it's challenging, isn't it? I'm not saying this flippantly. It's really challenging. When I'm hurt, I want revenge. At least I want justice. But that doesn't seem to be what's on view here. I don't know if you notice in the reading, Paul is almost cross-examining this church. He asks them eight questions through the reading, trying to help them almost diagnose the problem in their own heart. To see that underlying this lawsuit culture was actually a problem where this church were not surrendering their rights to one another, but they were being selfish. And Paul says there's no place for selfishness. Maybe in your heart you're thinking, yes, but that person's hurt me and they don't deserve forgiveness. That could well be true. But did I deserve forgiveness from God? And yet he did forgive me. I might be saying in my heart, yeah, but they've done it before, and if I just forgive them, they'll never learn. (laughs) I wonder if God's ever thought that about me. And yet he forgives me. Or, but they've done it again, they should know better. Maybe they should know better. And there is a place for a right rebuke and a challenge for the way that we treat one another. Of course there is. But just because someone should know better doesn't mean that they'll always get things right. Indeed, sometimes it will mean they do things really wrong. But that's the challenge of living in a church together. True love does not press rights. But just to pull all these things together as we close, to help us with this, because it's really, really challenging, to help us with it, know that God's love surrendered his rights. And that's something I'm sure we know, but let's reflect on it. 
Come to 1 Peter chapter 2. Reflecting on the Lord Jesus, Peter, one of Jesus' closest friends, talks about Jesus on the cross. What does he say? When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. You think about your saviour, Jesus. He was insulted on the cross. Did he deserve it? He didn't even deserve to be there. Jesus Christ suffered in your place on the cross and my place. Did he deserve that? Well, we saw this morning the great substitute. I am guilty. He is not. But he stands in my place that I might be forgiven. The incredible thing about Jesus in that moment on the cross is he chose to be a mercy person, not a justice person. Astonishing love that he was able to do what we've just sung, I surrender all. He literally surrendered all. And notice just at the bottom of that 1 Peter verse, ultimately, how is it possible? How is it possible to love like this when it's really, really costly to us? Well, at least one of the ways Peter seems to outline here is for you and me to entrust our lives to the just judge. Because when I recognize that there's a sovereign Lord of my life who sees everything, he sees all the good that's done, but all the harm. He sees when I'm misunderstood. He sees your heart. He sees when you're wrongly treated. He never passes a blind eye or is too busy to notice. And he cares. When you turn the other cheek and nobody else sees, but that quiet moment of resolve in your heart where you forgive, choosing in that moment to be a mercy person, not a justice person, gives great honor to the Lord who made you. Maybe nobody else sees that. Even if it's the quiet forgiveness in our own hearts, kneeling beside your bed at home, and nobody sees it. The incredible thing is God sees it, and he delights in us. It's an amazing truth, isn't it, to know that God is the judge of all, and one day all that is wrong, all the injustice, all the stuff that shouldn't have happened will be brought to light before the judge of the universe. But actually, as you consider all these things, and you consider the real deep hurt that you can feel when you're snubbed by someone, when you're misunderstood by someone, when you're not appreciated by someone, and it can really hurt. Consider how the God who made you and the God who made me feels all the times that we do that to him. And yet, as the great judge of all the earth, isn't it extraordinary that he doesn't treat us as our sins deserve? He may be the judge of all, but his full wrath and anger doesn't pour out on us, though we deserve it. As we saw this morning, he poured it all out on his only son he loved, who did not deserve to be there. And so actually, what I'm trying to do now, and I struggle with this all the time, and I need your help and prayers, but I'm sure that you'll struggle like me. When a person misunderstands me now, or hurts me, what I first try to do before reacting is to think of Jesus And actually, by God's grace, is not those moments where I misunderstood and hurt a little mark of God's grace. Because he says, there's a little opportunity for you to feel just something of how I felt. Maybe the injustice that we feel is actually an amazing grace from God. Reminding us of our Savior. Well, we're going to sing in a moment, uh, thank you for saving me. And I want us to reflect as we sing. That when the Lord Jesus hung on that cross for us, it was in that moment that he was not a justice person, he was a mercy person. And he was prepared not to give us what we did deserve, but to carry it upon himself that we can go free.
And my prayer for us as a church, and my prayer has been this all week, that we would not be a church, LCBC, where the world in an unhelpful sense gets into the church. But we would be a church where the gospel cuts through everything that we do. And the gospel then flows out from this place to be a witness to the watching world. Because how provocative would it be to a watching world if we love like Christ has loved us? Because the world doesn't love like this. And you and I don't love like this, but by God's grace, he can help us to increasingly love like this. And that will be to his glory. Friends, true love does not press rights. It's tough. But you look at the God who loves you and he surrendered everything for you. So what better motivation and what better help have you got to be able bit by bit by God's grace to love like this?